Watch your iced coffee listeners. I'm not in Antarctica or pretending to be in Antarctica this episode. I'm at home in the western suburbs of Melbourne, but we'll get into why that is in a little bit. I'm back from the south where I enjoyed recording material for the series on and around the islands and isthmuses of the Antarctic Peninsula. Rather than launching into episodes about Lincoln Ellsworth, who annoys me almost as much as Rear Admiral Richard Byrd, I've opted to bring you some optimism in the form of interviews I recorded with some of the people who entrusted their high latitudes care to me and my colleagues aboard the Ocean Adventurer. First up, Dana and Rachel. Would you mind introducing yourselves to the Ice Coffee listeners' name, uh, site of origin and occupation? Yeah, um, I'm Dana Dietz and I am from Detroit and I work in health insurance. I'm Rachel Gray, I'm from Huntsville, Alabama and I am a defense contractor with the U.S. Army. And we are on our way north across the Drake Passage after visiting Antarctica and sometimes it takes a bit of time to process such a, a dense an intense experience, but is there anything that stands out as the single most important memory or experience that you're, you're carrying north with you? I mean, aside from the amazing experience of just being on this boat, on this ship, um, I think my favorite and most memorable experience was when we were camping and I had to get up and pee immediately in the middle of the night. <laughs> and. Um, and when I went over to the, the area to pee, there were penguins watching me pee. And that felt really, <laughs> really unique and special. A moment that I just shared with those penguins. <laughs> and then also the glaciers calving around us. And, um, and it was just like a really magical opportunity to be able to camp out in Antarctica. It was amazing. I love that you've kept it base at the at the at the iced coffee mean and body, body functions which um no it's penguins man <laughs> so i'm gonna come back to penguins <laughs> i wonder if they think we're as cute as i think they are oh they, they are endlessly fascinating i don't think i will ever get bored watching penguins they're so fast climbing up those hills they beat me every time but they, it's also because i'm distracted watching a penguin they're, they're just dogged they 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 look cute and clumsy, but I wouldn't want to get between a penguin and where it's going. I mean, they are clumsy though, right? I think that's one of my other favorite things is watching one fall down and then stand up and shake its head and and persist. <laughs> I felt like that was a personal lesson to me. Yeah, you could learn a lot from penguins. The I the shake of the head is almost cartoonish. It's like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> camping certainly is ultra memorable. But one thing I can't seem to wrap my head around is how gigantic Antarctica is. It doesn't matter which iceberg or glacier, what I'm looking at, what's standing next to it, what isn't standing there. It's so massive. It is huge. And every glacier that we saw, if I got to see it calve, and I did a few times, I just, I loved it. I was mesmerized. I was always staring at them, hoping they'd crack off a little bit. And when we were camping, we got a good two or three that we saw from our sleeping bags. And then throughout the whole night, you would just hear thunder. You know, you would think you're like, is it, is it thundering? And, and no, it's these glaciers coming in apart. It was, I loved it. I wanted to hear more of it. I could spend all day watching one, hoping that it would calf. I really could. I just <laughs> like it so much. And kayaking, I'm being near them. And 
especially when all the kayakers are quiet. Like if we could have a moment of silence to just sit and enjoy and hear the, the icebergs tilt and what it, the water rushing underneath them and crashing into them. I, I just like the sounds of Antarctica. I just wanted to hear it, especially the glaciers. That one was my favorite. Who's, sorry. And I love the polar plunge also. And we also got to jump in the ocean again in our dry suits so mm -hmm. one time just in bathing suits so you emerge as an icicle and then the second time in dry suits which only proves the usefulness of dry suits to me it was amazing and I have to say that every time I had the opportunity to jump in the water and I emerged I just felt ecstatic mm -hmm. and I feel like if I could do that every other day that that would become my new religion <laughs> yeah I'm glad that the spirit you kind of adopt out here is to try it even if it's a little intimidating just try it just jump in the water what are you afraid of just do it <laughs> you know well I'm only in a bathing suit jump in the water well now I'm only in a dry suit jump in the water and you don't you don't really hesitate you're like okay <laughs> you just go camping outside okay, okay. <laughs> but that's also because we were able to put our our lives in the hands of such wonderful guides right sure. so I trusted that everything was going to be fine and so I could do I could say yes to everything that was offered sure. and, and otherwise I most certainly would not have come up with these ideas on my own is Antarctica a long-term goal for you, or have you booked a booked a passage on the spur of the moment? Or what what was your path to this mm, point? It kind of happened accidentally, almost. I started traveling in 2013, just going to places that I wanted to see, with no real goal in mind. I just wanted to see these places, and it turned a little bit into a, an obsession, an obsessive hobby for me. I always wanted to go somewhere new. I always wanted to see something experience something new, the culture, the people, the food, especially the food. Um, and so before I had known it, I'd hit every continent except Antarctica. And I thought, well, I should go to Antarctica then. Like I should make sure that, and I like, I prefer cold weather, I prefer cold climates. So it just seemed like a given that I should go to Antarctica. And now I'm actually, I'm going up north. I'll go to the Arctic now. I've never seen a polar bear. So I've got to go up north. I have to see a polar bear. Um, but yeah, it just sort of happened. It wasn't ever really, there was never, I never looked back and said, okay, in the year 20, before 2020, I'm going to make sure I go to the, my seventh continent. It wasn't like that at all. I was going to places that I had passions about, that I wanted to see, that I was interested in. And it just slowly developed into, hey, I've done all these great things. I should check this box off too while I'm at it. I should go there. Um, I hadn't really planned it. It was more spur of the moment. And... Um, and I haven't, I haven't traveled as widely as, as Rachel here has. Um, and I hadn't traveled that much, especially internationally, over the past, say, 10 years or so, um, and not at my own discretion. So for me, um, coming to Antarctica was sort of an opportunity to revisit that part of myself. And I was really looking forward to the polar plunge as sort of um, like a personal rebirth, um, which is kind of, a, I guess, a big idea. Maybe silly. I don't know. I guess, I guess it depends yeah, on where your head's at. But um, but I, I I see it as a pivot point for me. Um, and it and I don't think I could have done it anywhere else. I love sharing Antarctica with people in every manner that I can. But it's never more immediate than when I'm traveling on these ships, and. I don't think anyone ever comes away unchanged, but sometimes it 
can take time to process that and understand it yourself. But you do you feel that you had that rebirth? I really do. I mean, it's been an amazing time for me. So it was my birthday yesterday, and um, I kind of did this trip as a as like a loving present to myself um, to treat myself the way that um, like the, to be the person that I want to be and sort of um, grow personally. And I've met so many wonderful people, and I've done these um, these new, like, sort of for me, risky things that I've not been doing for a long time. Um, and so I really do feel that way. I mean, we'll see how we'll see how it goes when I get back home in Detroit. But um, I do feel like there's been a shedding of of sort of like the before and the after, um, and I'm really excited about it. I feel really good. So I've talked to Dana about this extensively uh, during this entire trip, and I actually talked to you about it with Solon, the exhibition leader, a little bit, which was that I'm having the same feelings in Antarctica that I had in Africa or that I've had in Australia and other continents, which is that I'm so, when I'm out here in and what I like to think is an adventurous lifestyle and lots of uncertainty and you never know what to expect. And I feel so fulfilled and happy. Like I'm at my peak happiness. But when I go home and I'm at work, I feel like I am oppressing myself. Like I'm hiding or trying to like smother out this little spark that's in me and I'm trying to I'm trying to quiet it you know no I have to I have to work this job I have to make this money I have to take care of this person or that person like I have these obligations that I have to put before this really intense very commanding <laughs> uh, passion inside of you to go out and be in my I use the term be liberated be free do what you want see what you want meet new people you know, I don't mind a little risk, you know, do something that's that's risky, that's fun. So, at per usual, I go on a trip like this, or I go out and I think I'm going to go home and I'm going to quit my job. It's the first thing I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to go back. I'm saying, nope, I don't enjoy this. This doesn't, I'm not going to lay on my deathbed and think, mm, I'm so glad I did that job for all those years. No, I'm going to lay on my deathbed and have the flag that, you know, <laughs> I got into a bidding war with. And I'll be proud of that, and I'll be proud of the memories that I made and the friends that I made and keep in touch with. I have friends all over the world that I keep in touch with, and they always inspire me to do things maybe I wouldn't otherwise do if I hadn't met them. You know, they push you and they encourage you. So Antarctica, like so many other times, has just further proved to me that I don't think it's a successful, I don't think I'm going to be successful in this endeavor to kind of quiet the person I really want to be, the person I really, really want to be. And that I'm gonna ha I'm gonna either settle for this life that I have at home, or I'm gonna say, okay, no, I'm really t I'm willing to take this big step and this big risk, and let that spark really grow and ignite and be happy, like 100% happy. Wow, that was for both of you bigger answers than I was expecting. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I'm I'm really impressed. It's incredible because sometimes you say how did antarctica change it oh um I'm, i care more about penguins now it's like good good <laughs> that's a, that's a good thing i love but them that's i not, forgot how adorable that, they are that's not that's not the big sort of thing that i think will brew in someone as they process the experience and yeah. really um internalize and and meditate on what they've seen and done whether they're here as 
a Zodiac driver or the captain of the ship or a dishwasher at McMurdo Station. Antarctica is so big and so challenging that you don't you don't come and just do a job or you don't come and just see a penguin. You you come away from Antarctica with some pretty big concepts brewing away inside you. Yeah, I think um, over the past couple of years have been some of the worst times of my life and I feel like this trip, in per- like specifically this trip, has been probably the best thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, it's just been so amazing and part of that is because I made choices to um, it's like do this for myself and then a part of it is just that it everything that we have been exposed to is just so unfathomably large and amazing the ice in the water is amazing the the clarity of the ocean is amazing the skies I mean there's nothing that you there's nothing that I can say or do to possibly express um, the landscapes and, and I think for me there's no way you can possibly show this in film there's no, I mean it's indescribable it's indescribable and I think that it makes the world both seem a lot larger and a lot smaller um, because we have access the privilege of having access to this exposure but also um, you know, we were able to do it in two weeks and that's like astounding I've joked that I would be the traveling janitor, that I was just going to start, because I don't have any real survivalist skills, you know, (laughs) so I was just, I'm like, but these people, these these research stations and these ships and everything, they need janitors, right? Like, y'all need someone to do your laundry, and I'll do that, (laughs) you know, if that gets me, if that gets me to where I want to be, I will do that. PowerPoint. (laughs) Yeah, because even when we were camping, and I'm laying in the sleeping bag, and I'm cold, I'm uncomfortable, woke up a few times had like a 20 minute debate on whether or not I was going to get up to pee you know this is this is going to be a big thing to do even though I was pretty much miserable you know physically I was so happy that that I could be out there cold shivering really needing to pee in my sleeping bag in Antarctica like this is a dream come true this is awesome so I've joked I've been telling everyone I'm gonna I'm gonna go do what I can I'm gonna cook whatever y'all need I'm going to be hopping place to place just to get just to be able to experience what y'all get to live you've noticed that this ship has radars on it yes and that's your technical specialty uh, well, yeah, I would have a lot to learn for y'all. There would be a learning curve. I work mainly with missiles. But, oh, okay. but if we can find a ship that has a missile on it, yeah, we can. <laughs> we're yeah, we, I don't know what kind of ballistic missiles we have down here in Antarctica, but I'm interested to find out. Okay. <laughs> I, I misunderstood your career when you explained it to me. Well, it, changes. it does change. So it, it honestly it just depends on what my contract is. But at most of the time, it's blowing stuff up, which I don't think we need to do that down here. No, that's, that's actually what the treaty was geared specifically to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've forgotten my message. Ask me a question. <laughs> well, would you say that your son is coming next week? Yes. Have y'all traveled like this together before? Have y'all experienced this together before? We have traveled internationally together. We go to Detroit every couple of years to visit family. So being half a world away from home and being in uh, an environment that is very different to Australia is not a complete unknown to us. 
My wife and I are very anxious because he's never travelled out of our company. He's travelling with a very trusted friend, Brian Pardo, who I've mentioned several times in the series and praised as just the smartest, most reliable man I know. So we don't have any worries about Brian, but you know, it is half a world and you're a parent. How old um, is he? He's 12. Oh, I, for some reason I envisioned him I to be a bit older. I thought he'd be 16, older. right? Because yeah. the, That's because mm-hmm. I'm how long old is and he? shit. <laughs> <laughs> and how long is he coming for? He's coming for the same span of voyages yeah. you have. So um, 11 days? Uh, not, not the full 11 days, because he'll join us already having um, arrived at King George Island. So we, we skip the transits. Oh, that's so cool. But the same number of excursion days. And I don't know which of the three of us, out of Brian and my son and I, are the most excited because mm. Brian and I have worked in marine science together and we were actually born on the same day. <laughs> it's really odd. He turned up at this lab and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, into, into marine polychaetes. He's like, yeah, so am I. Goes, yeah, yeah, and turned out that he doesn't drink and it was born on the same day. And he was like, someone's winding me up here. And then he <laughs> makes balloon animals. Separated at birth. And he's like, I make balloon. <laughs> someone is some. There's a hole. (laughs) Just two frozen peas in a pod. But yeah, um, he was really excited to get the invitation to to join Xavier and chaperone Xavier around the world. Mm. And to me, this is the biggest thing that has happened to Xavier and I since he arrived in the world. You know, that transition from non-parent to parent. um, This is the next. And I'm I'm very sorry to my daughter. Her arrival was big. Was a big deal. But that was. (laughs) from parent of one child to two children, which is just yeah. multiplication. Mm-hmm. It's not a zero to one sure. difference. So you've already done this with, oh wait, no, no, no your daughter's she, she'll younger. be later, yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, so this is the first, the yeah. first kid that's gonna and come see I'm, you I'm, like this. I'm trying to find ways to make her feel not engaged in his experience, but at least mm-hmm. that she is in train. So yeah. she doesn't feel too badly left out. So I'm gonna, Like it's I'm a gonna, future rite of passage? Yeah, so I'm gonna ask the, um, the other guides to write postcards to send to her and I'm getting one of Dave's books and I'm going to get him to dedicate it to her and just whatever I can do that she she feels that while he's had the big adventure her turn will come. Uh, what do you look forward most to, to showing him and teaching him? Oh, I think I'm excited about introducing him to these landscapes and to the wildlife and he's ridiculously excited about the predators, the orca and the leopard seals. If we can find either of those for him, just over the moon. But I think the thing that I'm most excited about is him seeing me driving the Zodiacs um, and just doing something that I love and that I think I'm good at. He's, he's seen me do some, some really shit jobs. I worked in trauma cleaning and I worked in palliative care and I worked as a, a I was in security for a brief time. He's seen me do some shitty jobs that I hated. Mm. Uh, I want him to see me doing a job that I am passionate about and where I fucking look mm-hmm. pretty damn cool. Yeah, and he'll always remember that. Like, especially because he's in such a trans, like just a transitional time for him at that age to see his dad doing something that is just badass and cool and you're going to be like a hero and he's it's going to that's going to remain with him so as he grows and gets older and he develops his passions and things he's wanting to do he'll look back like I speak from experience he will look back on that moment and be like yeah my dad could do these things I can do these things too it's going to be really cool for yeah, him yeah and I think he's going to see it he's going to see you not only of course through his, his own eyes but also he's going to see sort of 
the credibility and deference that you get from the guests mm -hmm. here and like the massive respect that we have for you and I mean I think that's going to be really interesting for him to sort of see how other people look to you as a leader. Mm -hmm. Wow, I hadn't thought of that perspective. Thanks. Um, it's on me not to fuck up. Like if I get if I get caught in sea ice like Yvonne and Jill did the other day, and I you won't know any better. If I, don't, if I don't pull that iron out of the fire, you just tell us. Yeah. Well, I think I think as long as you don't look like you're like you need to be rescued. But if, if you if you pull an Yvonne and you like charge through that sea ice, also then caught, that'll be awesome. It'll getting be caught in the sea ice was stellar. It was. <laughs> I loved every minute of it, and I now have a new respect for ice fields when they told us to put away our kayaks, that we couldn't, you know, paddle through the ice field. I was like, whatever, you know, we could have. No, no, we definitely could not. <laughs> um, very, uh, I, very educating moment for me and my hubris, and I'm glad that it happened, and I thought it was awesome. So I, if he got stuck in the ice field, I bet he would think it's cool too. Yeah, and, and I think for Rachel and I also, we did, a, we did all of the activities that were offered. We did the kayaking, we did the camping and we did the, all of the plunging options also. And I think um, the trip that we had is so different from, just because we opted into those things, mm -hmm. um, I feel like we had the closest possible experience that we could have had. And that kayaking was so important. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and to Rachel's point, we, when we were, when our group of 10 or so, maybe 16, um, were kayaking on our individual kayaks, um, our guides got the cue that uh, sea ice was moving in and they had us kind of wrap it up um, a little bit, well, you know, on time. But they extracted us from the potential sea ice situation, then we did a disembarkment on, on land, and then when Rachel and I were right getting, when we were going to take the Zodiac back to the boat, the ship, um, it was just like a minefield of ice. So just for, for your listeners, I wanted to set that scene. How, How rapidly I mean, it was in. You could see it. Just it was quick. like a flow. Mm -hmm. And then and I think one of the moments where I was like, oh, shit, was when um, a large piece of ice moved and then another piece of ice emerged from underneath it. <laughs> and then that kept happening. So it just, I mean, yeah. it was just expansive. It was beautiful. But, I mean, we had a real time. I mean, we were out, we were out there for like an hour and a half, But that's how Antarctica hours. should be experienced, right? Yeah. That's, like, it's all great to go wine and dine. That's cool. But you should want to go to these places with the expectation of getting roughed up. Like, I, I want to go somewhere and be challenged. I don't want to go and just have nice wine and hot food. I want to go and be like, hey, I'm really trying to tough this out and see what I'm capable of. Well, we were just discussing that situation in the meeting upstairs and Yvonne um, characterized it that it wasn't a hundred percent cover of ice it was mm -hmm. multiple hundreds of percent coverage because the ice that you see at the surface is not the whole story as you push apart two flows the third one that has been rafted under will pop up and block the progress that you thought you'd made and um, like I've, I've long had tremendous respect for Yvonne she's a really she her experience of Antarctica dwarfs mine and her academic credentials dwarf mine and her experience in this industry dwarfs mine. And she just, she just, you know, it wasn't easy, but she, she pushed herself against that challenge and she, you know, she's just such a badass. Yeah, yeah, she's astounding. It was super cool. 
It was super cool because we were su- we were successfully extracted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's cool because you look to the guys, you look to you and Javon and Marla and Jill, all these all these people, and you just think they are really living it. Like they are living life, and you just look at them and you're like, I want to be Matt. Like I want to, I want to be Matt. I want to be Yvonne. I want to be Vicky. I have a girl crush on Vicky. I want to <laughs> be these people. Because I just look at them and I think these guys—they're smart, they're quick, uh, they're they're skilled, and they're just what can't they do? You know, you look at them and you think, what can't they do? And you want to—you want—they inspire you. Y'all inspire well, us. Keep myself employed for the other nine months is the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've stated that it's impossible to put into words, but I think you've both done exceptionally well in this short time doing that. And I encourage you to keep doing that and share the experience with as many people as you can, because it is a privilege to come here. Not everyone will get this opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's important that we share it as widely as possible. And my contribution to recap tonight speaks to that. And I won't spoil the surprise. I'm actually gonna record it and add it as a coda to this interview because if I nail this presentation which I don't always do Mm -hmm. I think it really gives people the spurs to do exactly that to share Antarctica and to to make this experience communal thank you sorry thank you but as a historian I have a request not for this podcast but maybe a different time you could explain the origins of the name Mr. Yum Yum this is very puzzling to me (laughs) Uh, it's kind of gross and I'm definitely interested in hearing more about it from the historian himself Uh, why episode (laughs) we are obsessed (laughs) I think it's episode 81 of the series talks talks about taking the piss out of Antarctica (laughs) uh, there's an interview with my friend Sam at the start but then it gets down to just how has sewage been processed in Antarctica through the history of human habitation Mm. and I think Mr Yum Yum is just another in a long line of borderline not funny names (laughs) applied to toilet blocks and ablutions. Uh, People seem to feel a need that it must have a humorous label for this very base function I mean, it helps. Biology. It helps. I have a question for Rachel. Did you know anybody else who had gone to Antarctica? No. Me neither. But you know what? I think we should change that <clears throat> and make people come. Make them go. Get a little wet. It ain't going to kill you. I think the other thing I w- want to share is that we both here both came here absolutely solo. Um just because we wanted to and that the and it has been so easy to do that um which is another part of our privilege but um I know sometimes people try to wait or try to find travel partners Mm -hmm. um who have the same interests and the same money and the same availability and privilege um and neither of us did that we just uh, pulled the trigger for ourselves, and I, yeah. I just want to encourage folks to do that too. Cause they should. You should travel alone at least a few times because it's important. Just like solitude is important. Some people do not know how to be alone. You need to solo travel at least once or twice in your life because that solitude, that somewhat feeling of being alienated or anything, it only grows you as a poor person. It helps you be feeling comfortable and you really get to know yourself that way. If you constantly surround yourself with people or friends or a sense of comfort, you're never really gonna like achieve 
self-actualization, you know, which should be the goal for all of us, um, you know, you need, you should challenge yourself to be alone and go and experience new things by yourself. It's important that you do that. And for me, um, traveling solo for this trip has meant that I didn't have to compromise anything I wanted to do. And so, so while yours is about um, being independent, perhaps, mine was more about, I get to do whatever the fuck I want uh, at any moment. And that meant that I got to do all of the things. They didn't have to worry about anybody else. It's been so wonderful traveling with you. I really hope that you take it seriously when I invite you to come to Melbourne and stay in my home. And my children would benefit from meeting you and seeing. I love Australia. I'd happily. That's so kind, and I've never been to Australia yet. And you're welcome to Alabama anytime. <laughs> in Detroit or LA, depending on where I end up. You'll definitely be in Detroit. Sometime. Yeah, you'll be in Detroit. Alabama. Alabama has its appeal, but um, Detroit is where the family is. Detroit wins this round. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt, for chatting with us. Oh, thank you so nice. much for your time. And You've your been incredibly kind. Yes. And now, Nicholas Reddy discusses artists among the ice. Uh, um, sorry, can you introduce yourself for the listeners? Um, yeah, so my name is Nicholas Reddy, and I'm an artist uh, from Crested Butte, Colorado, and I have been painting my entire life, and um, first encountered Antarctica when I was asked to illustrate a children's book um, about Anne Bancroft and Lee Arneson, the first two women to attempt to ski across uh, the continent, and that was in uh, 1999. So it's, it's been 20 years to actually propel you to Antarctica for your first experience of the continent. Absolutely. I think, I think that it's um, the accessibility to the place has uh, increased quite a bit in the last two decades, and um, it, the affordability has got to a point where I could make it down here. So um, the opportunity arose, and I jumped on it. Yeah. And it's been wonderful to watch you on this voyage interact with the landscape and encounter the wildlife at a pace I've never seen any of our, our, our guests engage at, just taking your time and really just sitting still and painting and where everyone, including me, is charging around photographing and um, trying to document it with a phone and huge volumes of memory you sit down and what well, it's quite a remarkable piece of technology you're using but can you can you explain to the to the listeners the challenges of painting in such a cold environment yeah well i'd say first of all um however it might appear i did run around quite a bit and i took about ten thousand images in 10 days so um, i did my fair share of chasing images however uh, whenever i saw an opportunity where we were provided an extended amount of time i tried to switch gears and say what i'm here for is to create art and to you know join the great history of artists that have been to antarctica and try to contribute to that in some way and I've always felt that it's better to, to take in one place and learn everything there is about one scene. Because if you spend an hour and a half looking at 
one small section of what is a massive landscape, you see so much more about the landscape and not just what you might notice at first glance, but um, smaller details. And, and um, so uh, what I was using on this trip um, is from a lifetime of traveling. Um, I've, I have a small watercolor kit um, that is, you know, fits in a pocket and um, a small sketchbook about four by six inches. So literally this is something that can go anywhere I go. Um, and uh, of course with the challenges of painting in a cold environment, I um, switched to um, vodka instead of water. And uh, <laughs> this was uh, recommended to me 20 years ago and I never forgot uh, the recommendation from a Norwegian artist um, who had uh, come down here to paint and he told me if I ever had the opportunity that vodka would keep my paints from freezing and so I never forgot that. I tried it out on this trip and I have to say it worked spectacularly um, maybe except for the fact that I'm pretty sure I smelled like I was boozing it up a couple <laughs> times but <laughs> uh, that vodka actually evaporated incredibly quickly so I was able to make these sketches and have dry sketches almost instantly which for the pace that we were traveling and um, the, the amount of moving we did, it worked, worked great. Um, I use a water brush, so I don't have any external containers to, to um, mess around with or get in the way. All of the uh, water or the vodka, um, I started calling them vodka colors instead of uh, water colors, but the, all the water is in the brush itself. And so it's self-contained and it makes it quite easy to, um, to be portable and, and paint with it. The question I almost always ask people as they as they cross the Drake and head north, it's sometimes difficult to process an intense experience, but is there anything particular that stands out as a, a singular moment that will live with you forever? Yeah, um, for me the singular moment was returning from Peterman Island. and. Um, being on the Zodiac when, um, well let me back up and say that the morning started with a paddle excursion on glassy smooth crystal clear water and a warm sunny day and uh, within about 45 minutes a giant ice flow occupying three quarters of the channel flowed across the, the channel and uh, blocked the Zodiac's path back to the, to the pickup spot and um, so when we got on the Zodiac to return to the ship, I instantly started wondering if I preferred to be on shore or on the Zodiac. And when we came to a halt, uh, after hacking at icebergs with the wooden oars that I'm pretty sure for emergency purposes, uh, uh, for about an hour to an hour and a half, um, and we came to a complete stop in the middle of the passage, no more than 75 feet from where we started, it really made me realize um, how far away we are from um, anything and yet how in the middle of everything we are at the same time. And um, I have never grown as fond of a ship as I did on this journey. When I saw the ship turn towards us and the captain at one point, uh, Solon said, uh, let's, let's ask the captain what he'd like to do in this situation. And that's when I realized that it was maybe a little out of the ordinary. And the uh, captain radioed back that he would bring the ship close by and release the pressure on the ice so that maybe we could push out into the, 
the open water behind the ship as it passed close to us. Um, and uh, it worked perfectly. And as the captain said today at the, the toast at the end, um, uh, the ship was not an icebreaker and the Zodiacs were not a ship, but the technique worked. And uh, I, I just felt that that situation, it doesn't matter whether you come down here as a tourist, whether you come down here on expedition, whether you come down here for science purposes, everyone is in the same place. And that place is very wild. Uh, you know, you're going to experience nature in a way you never have ever before. And it goes from being pleasurable to a very real experience very quickly. And that, that really settled, set the whole um, trip in perspective for me. It made me appreciate the easy outings, the easy adventures we had, and made it put it in perspective on how lucky we were to be experiencing those. And uh, that, that's really when it set in for me. The, the continent doesn't want you dead but it's indifferent to your survival in a way that anywhere that humans have established themselves um, it seems benign um, it, and that yeah it's not that it's not the first time I felt that way but it certainly it, it was there on that day at Peterman that, okay this this situation has changed Let's see what we can do by doing this, and let's see what we can do by doing. And we weren't scared, no. But it was an unusual situation, and it required some unusual solutions. And fortunately, this team um, full of badasses. <laughs> I'm so so pleased to be part of it. <laughs> yeah, the the entire team made it, um, you know, made the whole situation very comfortable and more interesting and fascinating and eye-opening than it was fearful. It, it just really made you appreciate the place. Um, and, you know, it also just the scale of, you know, you look at that dot of the zodiac compared to the massive landscape around you and it just really puts the, everything is about scale here. It's really difficult to understand the scale of the place until you see something, whether it be an animal or a person or, and I think that's one of the things I tried to do in the art pieces was put some sort of scale. Often it was the ship because you could stand back from it and put the ship in the landscape and it became the, the object that gave it perspective. But um, um, uh, it, 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 for 20 years I've researched the place, been curious about the place, and none of that prepared me for what it actually was to be here and to see it. it, it, it uh, it far exceeded any of my expectations or what I thought I was getting into. Um, I saw colors I've never seen before in my life. I've been a painter for my entire life and I come down here and all of a sudden mm, palettes of color are redefined for me. What is a subtle palette? Is, is now there's you know 300 colors within a, a small spectrum of white or, or um, uh, you know, how, one thing I struggle with is how do you show it snowing in a snowy landscape? And so to search out dark shapes in a snow and ice covered landscape was a really fascinating challenge. And so I was always searching for these walls of rock. And I had no idea how many walls of rock you can find down here. They're everywhere. These massive towers of, of rock that you can 
put a wall of snow in front of a wall of falling snow more you know more specifically um, it's, it's a I should say that this is a, a very th three-dimensional landscape that we visited and comparing it to my early experiences in Antarctica in the Ross Sea Mount Erebus dominates the landscape but almost everything when you turn away from Mount Erebus is flatness because you've got the barrier and mm -hmm. the sea ice until you get out to Victoria land so um, I'm excited to, to imagine what you would make of those other landscapes that Antarctica can present and then the interior has its own it's, it's a big place and it's, it's, it's variety is you know you think Antarctica as a child you think ice and snow and that's a fairly simple construct and you come to Antarctica and you realise this this ice and snow has the variety of any of the other continents. It's just a different kind of variety. Yeah, I think what I what really what really um, blew me away is seeing geology in action. The living ice, this this living, breathing kind of cracking you know thundering calving um, crevicing the, the, all of the um, a lot of times in the Rocky Mountains you see the after effect of all the glaciers the glaciers are gone you see the wonderful moraine valleys you see all the the, the nun attacks up in, in, uh, in BC and in British Columbia in the mountains there but to actually see the ice that's still creating those shapes right now you know, to, to see those actions in, in process was um, um, feeling more like the landscape was alive and living as opposed to you're seeing what's left after the landscape has calmed down. Um, that, that, that was incredibly eye-opening to me. It, it was not a frozen place, it was a, an alive place. And, and uh, I, I thought, uh, that was not what I expected to, to take from it. If you wordsmith any harder, you're going to put me out of the podcasting <laughs> demarcation here well you're, catch, you're catching me on the last day and I and it's going to take me months to wrap my head around the experience I, I mean I, I have only begun to explore it artistically and I did realize immediately that only doing you know um, a dozen pieces of art while I was here was like little tiny pinpricks in a you know, in this massive place and that I was only going to see but a speck of what Antarctica is and that did nothing but make me want to return and return and return and, and see more and experience more. Which leads elegantly into the next question, where to from here for you and Antarctica? Yeah, well, I, I know that I've seen but a tiny bit of Antarctica and I am uh, really excited to um, to dive into first the history of the artists here um, I'm more fascinated about the challenges the artists faced than ever before I, I want to understand the artists that have come before me here and, and maybe even compile a little history of what that is for myself and maybe for others um, so maybe that's a first step uh, I always like to put it in the context you know maybe before I move forward understand what came before um, after that I've had goals of um, artists in residency programs that are available um, through many different countries here and so I'd like to pursue those opportunities and uh, um, I have published one 
book already on Antarctica, and I, I think this experience will lead to um, uh, potentially another uh, possible publication, main, mainly because I've been asked so many times by all the ship's passengers to create or provide something for them, and I, I think uh, I think I owe it to uh, myself and and uh, the continent to do something like that. I, I feel like the place deserves some introspection from an artist today and um, so I think that's um, oh I, I guess the other thing is I found out about um, ski trips down here and I'm kind of curious about that as well <laughs> uh, I do love skiing and combining skiing and my art down here would be pretty amazing um, so I'd like to maybe bring artists down here as well I think it was eye-opening to me enough to a point where I would love to try to provide that opportunity for as many other artists as possible. That's um, a really exciting prospect for me. I have recently had several vigorous discussions, some might say arguments, some might say spitting contests with people that try and gatekeep Antarctic experiences and you know if you're not down there for science you're not in Antarctica or if you're not down there for a winter you're not in Antarctica. And I think that that's bollocks. And I think that the people that have a stake in that argument, they're being precious without cause. And it tends to be the scientists and the, the science support staff that want Antarctica to be theirs in some way. And that's why I get so excited when I, I see you engaging with the landscape and generating pieces of art that you will then want to show to people and you will want to share with people and I think the prospect of getting a shipload of artists in Antarctica, people that will have the experience and own the experience and want really vigorously to share the experience is a very exciting concept to me. And, and so many different point of views that we couldn't even sit here and begin to imagine because you line 40 artists up on the shore of Antarctica and every single interpretation is going to be different. That's, yeah. And that's an incredible thought. And, and you know, you talk about science, scientists, and I have always felt that science and art are so intertwined. They're so related. Um, uh, um, the process a scientist goes through to, to come up with a, a hypothesis, um, do experiments, try to prove it, observation, uh, recording documentation. I, I think the creative process for an artist is so similar to that. I, I, I might have come across as too damning. It's, it's not my entire <laughs> um, range of colleagues that are jerks, but the people that are being jerks tend to be the science and the science support staff. Well, you and I had a conversation earlier today about the history of um, artists helping bring back images of a place to inspire um, um, uh, support to inspire financial support to, of future expeditions, of future science expeditions. And I think that in order to continue to inspire people to support a place or support scientists, there still has to be great art coming from the place, whether it be writing or, um, or visual arts, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just to inspire um, what comes next. And, and I, I think that's why artists are so important to, you know, I, I'm not sure going to space is much different than coming to Antarctica. It, 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 we need artists there too as well to inspire exploration everywhere. Oh, the, 
the poetry that has come from space is so disappointing because <laughs> <laughs> we need to get some poets up there. Um, I believe that's going to happen soon. Good. I, I th a, a Chinese um, billionaire, I believe, is sending up eight of his favorite artists to space oh, with wow. Elon Musk. And I'm inspired by that, that idea that um, people are valuing it, you know, artists in um, extraordinary places to, to try to um, communicate what it's about to be there in extraordinarily wild places. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for traveling with me and thank you for being such a receptive audience and engaging so deeply with everything that's been offered. Oh, this was an absolute honor and uh, this, this team is a fine oiled machine and your passion for the history here is um, infectious and um, it, along with everyone else on this ship helped to create the mood and the environment that really led what I think, you know, the expedition to be a, just a fantastic adventure and experience and really special. With that in mind, I think I should lead you off to the library. I'm keen to get a hold of the copy of Aurora Astralis and show you what Shackleton's printers got up to. Excellent. Ah, optimism. And whatever the opposite of curmudgeons are. Nice. And now it's back to our usual programming. I try not to think of years as discrete parcels of good and bad experiences bookended by Hogmany, but damn me if 2019 didn't suck. Between cutting ties with one of my best friends when she couldn't countenance me bad-mouthing her son, who owes me $6,000 for care I provided for his cancer patient partner, from whom he is withholding the opiates that make life bearable to a person with brain cancer, through to my sisters using my mother's deteriorating health as the leverage in an attempt to blackmail me into forgiving them for their victim-blaming bullshit regarding my dealings with my brother-in-law over the past quarter century. 2019 straight up sucked big old hairy donkey balls. It also featured the second time I've departed Antarctica, determined never to work with a particular group of people ever again. Likely, you've already picked up that in the first decade of this century, I spent two seasons at Scott Base working as a diver. I received an invitation to go back in 2007, but declined because I knew I couldn't work with the dive supervisor K068 lumped itself with, Brian Grant. The principal investigator of the project, Dr. Miles Lamar, failed to do anything about the problems Brian caused because he didn't want to rock the boat. So he carried on diving under the supervision of the asshole, and I went to Canberra for three years, which involved more pay and ship time, but less diving. It broke my heart to ditch further opportunities to dive under the sea ice, but given the nonsense I'd seen Brian engage in, I didn't feel he provided a safe work environment at the dive site, and his personal behaviour on base, ranging from belligerent sexism and racism, through to a threat to punch me in the face if I ever changed the DVD without his express permission again, made my decision for me. And I'll just note that we've got a thunderstorm rolling in from the east here, which you never get in Antarctica. Miles continued working with Brian until the University of Otago, lumbering along under the academic don't rock the boat model, finally dismissed him from the surveying department for repeated displays of belligerent incompetence and workplace harassment. Because even Kiwis have their limits of tolerance for abuse of privilege and opportunity. 
at which Brian took the access codes to the surveying department's databases with him and fucked everyone over once more, as is a sociopath's MO. Miles can't dive with Brian anymore, and likely knows better than to try and get me back on board as his replacement, which I was qualified to act as from 2005 onward. Similarly, 2019 saw me contract as a Zodiac driver and history presenter to Quark Expeditions for the last time. Here's my end of season report to give you some idea as to why, for the second time, I departed Antarctica determined to avoid working with an organisation again, even if it means I never return to the ice. Quark makes a lot of noise about valuing its field guides and does a lot at the back end to ensure we feel like part of a team and to garner our loyalty. But the way you treated me in the face of abuse from a guest demonstrates that guide well-being lies well down your list of corporate priorities, and that's a big disappointment. The response Quark made to my standing up to a bully, a guest Christian described as a dickhead, though one he never actually sought to help deal with, only ever complaining about him behind closed doors, was to allay guest disquiet by throwing me under the corporate bus. This was couched in terms of seeking the best outcome for my well-being, but no one checked with me on that front, and the resulting flights home and arrival in Melbourne became a source of personal shame and chagrin. My wife is upset that my income is, once more, uncertain because of workplace bullying and failures in leadership and company support. My children are upset that what had been the best thing my son and I ever did together is now tarnished by its association with this dent to my mental and emotional equilibrium, and that my daughter may never get the opportunities her brother enjoyed this austral summer. By its actions, Quark endorsed the slur used against me and failed at every subsequent step to consider my well-being in spite of attempts to give lip service to the opposite intent. Intent and outcome are not the same thing, and where you might state you had my best interests at heart, I saw no actual verbs in play to demonstrate that was the case, and I reread my emails from Christian and Nikki as weak rationalisations allowing their consciences off the hook for throwing me under the corporate bus in order to protect the brand and assuage guest disquiet. I am hurt at being treated like a problem to be brushed under the carpet after I worked so hard to serve Quark and its guests. I am dismayed that your bragging about your team and how well you treat them was only so much noise. Every gambit Christian applied in trying to get me to see this situation from his perspective failed, largely because every gambit he tried comprised informal logical fallacies. It only takes one good argument to convince me of a particular point, but several bad ones can never add up to one good one. So, he was just joking, he probably didn't mean for it to hurt you, this is for your own good, and you're dealing with a lot at home so it's probably for the best that you spend Christmas among family, fell flat before he even gave them voice. I've had a shit time since Quark sent me home early. I had my season dialed in and was nailing my tasks, going above and beyond what Quark expected of me and what Christian requested of me. I had home issues squared away before I joined the ship and dealt with emergent situations effectively, continuing to provide expert service in spite of the bullshit my sisters threw in my path via email. What threw a spanner in my season was a guest choosing to slur me when I was working hard to serve their best interests and Quark not having my back when I stood up to that deliberate and unnecessary harm. I requested Quark seek an apology from the guest in question, but have given up hope that that request was ever followed up. You have set a shitty precedent, and I hope none of your contractors ever experience similar or worse treatment from a guest, a 
a fellow guide or an EL as a result of their lack of a, as a result of the lack of a clear understanding of their agency caused by the demonstrable gap between your rhetoric about having your contractors backs and what you actually do for them when they really need your support. At best, I hope this feedback sets in motion new protocols and SOPs that will prevent any of my fellow guides experiencing similarly shabby treatment at your hands. Christian leads about as well as Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. It's fine when the weather is good and the guest cohort doesn't feature any recalcitrant dickheads. He uses the scheduler to good effect and can pivot like a well-oiled hinge, but when the weather turns shitty or recalcitrant dickheads inculcate the idea in an entire cohort of guests that they don't need to heed instructions from guides, Christian's leadership model falls to pieces. During Voyage 5 of my contract, he failed to get a small guest cohort on side with our SOPs and IATO guidelines and never caught up the lost ground. I would not sail under Christian's leadership again for a fat sack of gold and a new hat. And here's my final email to expedition leader, Christian, the Dante Hicks of Antarctica, just before my email access was blocked aboard the ship. Christian, I've worked like a Trojan on your behalf. I've hit every time you set me and turned up ahead of time and correctly dressed for every occasion. I've stretched my creativity and knowledge to engage and delight our guests. I've been sociable well outside my comfort zone in dining situations, in the front lounge and around the decks. When I had a problem with your leadership, I brought it straight to you and we worked through it, where others might have sniped behind your back. I've had this season dialed in and was nailing it until a tranche of particularly problematic guests threw their arrogance and ignorance into the mix and a particular dickhead, your word, chose to use a slur on me. I don't know what else I could have done to demonstrate I had your back. I wish you'd had mine. Matt. In the wake of this falling out with Quark, people have been getting in touch to let me know of their own problematic experiences in the tourism industry, and I'm finding myself pretty dispirited that I may not find things any different in any other company I might contract with. But I don't see that that should be the case. The field guides I know are high latitudes badasses, and almost universally lovely people. They deserve to be given the bare minimum respect you should afford to anyone doing their job well. I think some of the guests who head south feel the large fees they've paid to reach Antarctica give them licence to treat the guides or the ship's crew as something other than highly skilled and professional operators seeking to serve their interests, and that's not good enough. And the companies that ignore such bullshit endorse that bullshit and offer licence for things to get worse. With Antarctic tourism becoming a busier industry with each passing year, it's on the companies to afford their contractors the agency and the support they need to hold to the SOPs and the IATO guidelines or to stop pretending they're responsible operators with their eye on the safety and well-being of their guests and field guys and the well-being of the wildlife. Some people have tried to shush me on this topic, from fellow guides on ship to family and friends at home, mostly with admonishments that it's rude to speak ill of people in public or that I'm denting my chances of getting back and that I just have to accept that people being assholes is part of life. I reject their shushing on all fronts. People working in or trying to get into the industry should know what lies in the offing. Clients of that industry should know what's expected of them. I don't care that it's not nice to publicly speak ill of people because nice is, as I've mentioned before, an arbitrary metric only a packet of biscuits might feel proud of wearing is an adjective. I care about what's good and right and that often gets criticised as not being nice by people who don't acknowledge that it's possible to be a perfectly nice fascist 
who never swears and who uses the correct fork at 11s. On the matter of fascists, I note that Instructor Bird, some of her colleagues and a cohort of her students are getting fired from the Corrective Services Department in Virginia for their neo-Nazi antics, and a good job too. I don't doubt for a second that Instructor Bird comes from the lineage that gave us such bastards as Richard Bird, Richard II and Richard III, and Senator Harry Flood Bird. So it was with some delight that I learnt of Instructor Bird getting what she deserves for publicly professing her fascist leanings, particularly as she tried to gaslight her accusers in an effort to dodge responsibility for her choices. I love it when people who mistake the free in free speech as pertaining to without cost rather than to freedom, and who receive the unpleasant consequences their abuse of that freedom warrants. A bag of dicks with a bow to all Nazis and Nazi apologists. I've also received shushing from people who don't want to see me sued by the people I've spoken badly of, but any defamation suit laid against me would want to feature better reasoning and rhetoric than anyone presented to me to date, if it's going to achieve anything more than the Streisand effect. All that aside, I experienced lots of firsts during my recent stint in Antarctic waters. My first visits to Castle Rock, Frey Station, Bellingshausen Station, Two Hammock Island, False Bay, Curtis Bay, Elephant Point, and my first occasion getting blocked in by sea ice when the wind and tide changed to our disadvantage at Peterman Island. That occasion saw the best in my colleagues come to the fore, particularly in the badass zodiac driving of Dr Yvonne Cook, who triumphed over greater than 100% pack ice cover to get two zodiacs worth of guests back to the ship. I made my first ever visit to Paulette Island, which afforded me the opportunity to visit the remnants of the hut in which Carl Anton Larsen and the crew of the Antarctic, ship version, spent their long dark winter, and also offered views of Dundee Island, slated to feature prominently in the closing chapters in upcoming coverage of Lincoln Ellsworth's efforts to cross the continent in a Northrop Gamma. The visit to Paulette Island made tangible part of the story of Nordenfeld's expedition, and I furnished the rest of the story in a narration involving my colleagues moving about the front lounge of the ocean adventurer, representing the disparate ships and parties involved in that Scandinavian and spatially involved tale. It seemed to go over well with the audience, and I really enjoyed working out how to tell such a complex and oddly paced tale effectively. I also heard a leopard seal singing its strange and trilling song while it lay on an ice floe. I never knew they made those noises above the water, and it added to an overall sense of mysterious allure these animals always generate when they're lolling about and not actively scaring the pants off me. Looking to the future, I'm eager to get to the Scott Polar Institute to spend some time in their library working up notes from unpublished journals and documents. If anyone knows of grants I might apply for that could help me make that happen, please get in touch and give me the good oil. I'm hoping, but not overly financially optimistic, that I'll attend the Australian Antarctic Festival in Hobart in August. More interviews with Anari club members await, and I've got some styrene to hand out, but we'll see how the finances look closer to the date. The server that hosts my business website crashed my email account while I was at sea, so there's two months of correspondence never made it to me. If I gave you my card and you tried to get in touch in November and December and received a bounced message, please try again. I'm particularly keen to hear from Nicholas Retty and all of the guest cohort who sailed with my boy. That was a hell of a voyage and you helped to make the amazing memories he carries forward.
I loved that everyone invested so much in his experience. And the compliments I received about my polite, engaged, intelligent son gave me a big dose of the warm fuzzies. More Antarctica for your ears. The NPR News Hour published a four-part series called The Last Continent, and I'm enjoying it a lot. Antarctic Stories features interviews with Antarcticans and covers a broad swathe of topics. 14 episodes so far and loving every minute of their content. Season 2 is presently in production. Michelle continues to publish Antarcticast when the bandwidth pally station allows and continues to offer unique insights. And I apologise if I mispronounced his name previously. Shouting out to Joe Maxwell in Ireland. Joe's interest in aviation and Antarctica saw him publish several sheets of decals for model builders to use in representing Antarctic airframes. I got in touch with him to ask if his LC-130 sheet was likely to get reprinted as I'm planning a representation of one of the ski herks I saw operating in McMurdo Sound in the early 2000s. The correspondence seeded an idea that he and I are following up, slowly, but more on that later. I love Joe's passion for aviation history and am presently reading his excellent book co-authored with, and I apologise for pronunciation, Radu Brinzan, about the Falga Magister in Irish Air Corps service, and I'm looking forward to using his decals on my models. Staying on models, cheers to the folks at Fiddler's Green for their excellent work in making two-dimensional templates that work up into three-dimensional paper models, in my case representing Ellsworth's Northrop Gamma in 148 scale and to Red Roo models for their excellent resin bits that helped me make a nice representation of the Inari C-47 that operated out of Mawson Station in the Austral summer of 1959 to 1960. Shout out also to Thomas Henderson of Graceful Willow Productions. Thomas' own time as part of the United States Antarctic Research Programs led to his fascination for Antarctic history and his documentary, Ice Eagles brings together amazing footage and interviews to map the story of US aviation in the far south. I just ordered a second copy for Joe, and I'm going to order other titles from Thomas' catalogue as I get to working up my notes for episodes about Operations High Jump, Windmill, and Deep Freeze. Finally, Erica Peters got in touch to comment that recent episodes were streaming too quiet for her to hear at work, even when using earbuds. So I've upped the signal at the editing end of production, and I hope the issue is resolved but please let me know if the series needs further course adjustments in terms of listenability. I'm not a hi-fi audiophile, but I do want to communicate effectively, and I fail on that front if you can't hear me. Bummed about my truncated contracting season, but stoked to be serving up on-site material once more. I hope to get back south at some point, but I'm not in a position to whine about a dearth of Antarctic experiences in my past if I don't. With that melancholy ending in mind, I'd be grateful if listeners would take another look at the revamped Patreon page for the series. Copyright-free images of Antarctica are pretty much all I'm offering to patrons, so there's only one tier, and I'm only asking $1 an episode, and I'm only intending putting out an episode a month for most of the rest of 2020. If everyone who listens subscribes at that level, our rent's sorted, and I'll be off the financial hook between now and whatever comes next in terms of gainful employment. Meanwhile, I'm working a shovel in a landscaping business, developing teaching materials with and presenting educational programs for the Port Phillip Eco Centre, and getting a trickle of presenting work for my own business, 
but otherwise my scruples about not being treated like dirt have, once more, left me hanging in the breeze generated by looming bills. The next tranche of episodes, already recorded and awaiting editing, cover Lincoln Ellsworth's sustained haranguing of Sir Hubert Wilkins to make sustained efforts to get the billionaire heir flown across Antarctica, and after that, partly recorded, a similarly proportioned telling of the British Grahamland expeditions story. I've been reading about Hans Richer's efforts on the behalf of National Socialism in Antarctica, and the Nazis are getting me well grumpy. Good thing I like and respect the BGLE, or you might perhaps think I'm something of a curmudgeon. Take care, and appreciate your coffee.